Hey everybody, welcome to the Weird Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. Um, this story, uh, there's a lot of uh, Gaelic and Welsh pronunciations in it, and I am not strong on those. I actually was super responsible for once and sat down and looked up like pronunciations of everything. So hopefully I will get it mostly right. If there's uh, anybody out there who actually knows like Gaelic and Welsh, and I, I horribly mangle it as I fully expect that I will, I'm so sorry, but um, I am doing my best. I am not a I am not a uh, I am not a cultured person. I am your typical American swine. If you are within the sound of my voice, which is everybody listening, please, 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 please stay inside. I know it's boring. I know it's hard to do. I know you just want to get out and do stuff and hang out with your friends and interact and play games and. Eat at restaurants, but please don't do that. Stay indoors. If you, it's just please, please. Like social isolation is, it sucks. I know it sucks. It sucks for me. It sucks for my wife. But it's really the only way that we're gonna get this thing under control. All right, and we have to get it under control because, I mean, if the when the hospitals crash and nobody's able to be taken care of. Just it's going to just up the death rate so much, and so please, 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 stay inside, self isolate. Don't go out unless you absolutely, positively have to. All right. And if you're one of those people who goes out to a restaurant to get food because I don't know you have luxury money that you can apparently just spend, don't be an asshole. Okay. I I I work in a restaurant, and I've been doing. A lot, a lot of to-go work. And just people are just so ungrateful. And, you know, we're out there risking our health and everything. It doesn't matter. Nobody cares. All right. Be nice to the people who are working. That's all I'm saying. Wherever you go, whatever you do, please stay inside. But if you do go somewhere, be nice to the people who are working. All right. Enough of that. Here we go. Kair Sheathy by George T. Wetzel Documents in the case of the Shoal Light 1. O'Malley's Journal November 6, 1799 Awoke this morning from another nightmare. Neil also had such disturbed slumber. He has unusual views regarding them, describes them as accompanied by a whirling around without motion, which seems to me pure Celtic superstition. But the real cause of the dreams is probably not his imagination, he seems to think some baneful influences at work, but rather the difficulty we have been having with the villagers. It is this concern that gives us both bad dreams. He disagrees. This forenoon, several of the village fishermen rode out to our lighthouse to remonstrate with us. The shoal light took God's grace away from them, they claimed. What blasphemy! To think that shipwrecks and the drowning of poor sailors are a special mark of God's favor to gain them the spoils of salvage. They're as bad as the Cornishmen who have lured ships to their doom with false lights. November 7th, 1799 Brian Mackenzie rode out unobtrusively this morning with a letter left for us at the Turk's Head Tavern by the postwriter. It had been sent by the Trinity House of Navigation to tell us an inspector is on his way. No doubt to check our logbook, for this light has been reported unfavorably by several ship captains who claim its beacon operated oddly when sighted. 
Neil and I have been very attentive to our watches. It seems very strange that such reports should have been made, and neither of us can understand it. Mackenzie warned us of trouble, perhaps this evening. The fishermen are speaking against the light, and met last night at the Turk's Head, where they roused themselves to fury against the light. We primed and loaded our fowling piece and our three pistols. Neither of us is alarmed, but we cannot help being uneasy, and being sleep-weary does not help. Sleep last night was full of illogical nightmares, of confused ideas, alien visions, a dreadful sense of vertigo. I did not rest much, and I have been tired all day, yet I will need sharp ears and eyes which are already heavy with fatigue. Neil is in the same condition, having had worse dreams than I. His recurrent dream came back, the anomalous nightmare of a whirling around without motion, which he thinks must have some connection, however obscure, with our light. Evening. The attack came just after dusk. Neil has an ugly head wound as a result of it. Two boats attempted to land on the rocks unseen, but Neil heard their oars creak and challenged them. One man stood up in his boat, shook his fist, and cursed us. Then two others fired at Neil, one shot wounding him. I returned their fire before they could reload. They retreated, not without some wounded, I believe. November 8th, 1799 Awake all last night. No new attack. The strain of watching shoreward constantly is taking its toll. My head swims with dizziness. If only I could snatch a few hours sleep. But I dare not. Neil needs a doctor's care but it would be disastrous to leave the light unguarded, for the fishermen would surely demolish it. Neil is too irrational to be of any help, and certainly cannot resume his watch. In his delirium, Neil's nightmares and superstitions seem to be taking conscious form, at least to him. I found him at dawn with his ear pressed to the stone floor. He was listening to the sound of the sea, he said. He explained that both seashells and lighthouses were hollow spirals, and thus both subject to the same acoustical phenomena. He babbled somewhat incoherently about the architectural similarity of our lighthouse to the Kairshithi, the spiral castle of Celtic myth. The fishermen left us alone all day. Perhaps they are waiting for the dark of the moon to try again. November 9th, 1799. My third night of sleeplessness. Every time I close my eyes, I seem to plunge into hallucination or nightmare. Sometimes I feel that I am asleep despite my open eyes and general awareness of my surroundings. Neil's muttering about the Kair Sheathi stirred my memories of something I had forgotten long ago. An old farmer I once knew accidentally plowed into a raised knoll in his grain field, one which had never been planted to grain, and opened a passageway. A local clergyman, an amateur antiquarian, crawled in and found it an ancient chambered mound whose walls were carved with a Celtic spiral of immortality. The relics were not Britano-Roman, he said, and talked a great deal of symbols found before graves in Goidelic legends, of cromlechs, and of obscure philological mythic relations between the wealth Sheathi and the Aishithi of Erin, and of Toinoint and Katair Kuroi. There was something else about Kair Sheathi of some significance, but my mind is so fatigued that memory of it will not return to me. I sat on the parapet outside for a long while last night with a lantern. As the clockwork mechanism revolved it, I felt the rhythm of the light winking out in one quadrant and darkness that rushed in to fill the resulting vacuum. Perhaps this is where Neil gets his strange nightmare of a whirling around without motion. 
nothing more than the revolving beacon on top of our stationary lighthouse. And yet, November 10th, 1799. A smoke squall has now raged for hours, one of the kind the Norwegians call a rugflage breeding in the ocean between Norway and the Orkneys. It is, in a way, a godsend, for the hostile fishermen will never put out from shore in such weather to attack the light. So I have been able to sleep and rest. We have the first hint of it at dawn. The clouds took on a water-green tint. Afterwards, I saw an unbroken black line far out to sea. This crept, hardly perceptibly, toward shore. In an hour, it was near enough to study in detail with my glass. It was a black wall of water, fathoms high, the herald of a fearful storm to follow. I saw a ship, too. Did its captain not see our warning beacon in the gray dawn? If he came closer, the monstrous waves would pound him on our reef. The aqueous wall grew to awesome heights, reaching almost to the waning stars and thrusting its crown through the lower levels of the clouds there. It seemed to me that this monstrous wave would surely roll over and swallow up the earth in its maw, yet it was still leagues away, and growing larger, wearing the aspect of doom. I took Neil down into the tower and lashed him and then myself to the beams, while the wall of water came rushing on like the sound of the last judgment. The roaring of water steadily increased, I thought, for hours, but it must have been only minutes, until all existence was one tremendous crescendo of wind and water. It struck at last, and the tower shook as if beset by a cyclopean earthquake. Tons of water crashed into the tower through the lantern and threw fissures between the stone blocks, drenching and almost drowning us. Lesser structures would have been torn up into the air and scattered, but our tower was built to withstand the enormous tidal surges and the incredibly high seas that rise from winds and storms blowing across the entire Atlantic without impediment, forces vastly more destructive than anything known to nature. Then it passed. I untied Neil and myself, and struggling through the water, some still pouring in, made my way to the top of the tower. A few dead fish and some seaweed littered the interior of the smashed lantern. Debris spewed up by the ocean. But outside, the world still existed. The force of the wave was still being thrown back by the shore's mass. Out on the sea, a waterlogged hulk drifted with several unfortunate seamen clinging to its masts. The rebounding swell shook the tower and passed on toward the foundering ship. I could not watch the end. November 11th, 1799 the storm diminishing today, though the wind drives sheets of water still above the boiling sea. Visibility very low. Evening. I repaired the lantern as best I could and got it into working order. I could not repair the shattered windows, and now the wind whistles eerily within the tower, like a single bass pipe in a church organ, or that sound a boy makes by blowing over the lip of an empty bottle. Several feet of water still stand below. Neil is much worse. He raves now and then, but is in a kind of torpor, almost comatose. I cannot understand most of what he says, but it is disquieting, if not frightening, to listen to him babble about the Kair Sheathi, coupling it with such otherworldly places as Anufin and Pedravan, all the more so since the significance of Kair Sheathi occurs to me now, and I remember enough of my boyhood in Erin, of the Celtic lore, to know that the Kair Sheathi was much feared and believed in by the older fishermen, that its name in the Gaelic, meaning spiral castle, was well chosen, an ominous symbol of death, 
that it revolved or spiraled at night so that none coming to its base could find its entrance, and more I cannot, or would rather not, recall. In many ways, its watery isolation, the spiral stairs, the revolving light, this tower is akin to the Kair Shithi. Lighthouse geometry and architecture might be precarious. November 12, 1799. Someone on shore attempted signal communication today, but the wind is too violent and the atmosphere too full of sea spray to permit reading the signals. Perhaps they saw Neil from the shore. Last night I put Neil on the parapet outside the tower. I would be more Christian, but I have a horror of him now. I cannot put him into the sea. In any event, I will think that I am mad. Perhaps I am. What I have noticed these past few nights inclines me to doubt my own reason, though I have tried to keep this record sane and balanced. That is the blurring of the view outside the tower, particularly at night, like a landscape glimpsed through a flawed window pane. No natural explanation offers itself for me, if it is an actual phenomenon and not the hallucination of decayed reason. Another thing, one utterly outre, threatens my sanity. Can the residuum of one man's nightmares be left over for another's dreams? I awoke, trembling last night from visions like those Neil had, those that cursed his last nights and haunted his days. I seem to recall its beginning in a megalithic place where I wandered among cromlechs, dolmen stones, and meniers, like fantastically high walls making a maze of spiral design. I was in a roofless, gigantic tower, down which shone a million stars out of heavens virtually alive with those circumpolar stars ever to be seen, heavens in which Draco writhed evilly about that forgotten axis of the skies where once it rained aeons ago, coiling and twisting around Polaris. But what drew me in that alien place was the great nebula of Andromeda, that majestic whirlpool of light whose irresolvable depths held a fascination I could not escape. There was a curious association of ideas dominating all things. That vast nebula, the watery vortex of the maelstrom at the bottom of which the monster kraken is rumored to lurk, and the endless ascending stairs of a tower that reached up out of blackness and ascended to darkness above. And, as in my dream I contemplated these triple spirals, I saw suddenly descending upon me, like a sentient beast, a towering water spout. A mass of wind-driven water comes screaming out of the starlit darkness, blotting out the stars. It fell upon me, and I began a terrible, twisting fall into the endless space of its darkness, and above the shrieking of the wind and the torrent of the water, there echoed in my ears that mocking phrase of Neil's, the whirling around without motion. Then I awoke, screaming. 2. The Late Inspector Michoud's Letter to the Trinity House of Navigation November 24, 1799 Honorable Sirs, Inspection of the shawl light at this place has been delayed by the bad storms which have been raging here since before my arrival earlier this month, great seas making it impossible to put in any sort of boat. Signal flag communication was ineffectual by reason of limited visibility. As we had been informed, the country people here are very hostile to this new light. They are probably responsible for tampering with reef markers and other navigational aids in this vicinity. Concerning the light, I observed daily through my telescope one of the keepers standing watch on the outside parapet in the worst weather, unaware of the hideous truth about his vigilance. 
but since I learned that an attack had actually been made on the lighthouse, I supposed that the keepers were determined to prevent another and were thus constantly on guard. The beacon itself, however, has shown steadily. I am at a loss to understand complaints about its unreliability. The seas calmed last week, and I was able to get out to the shoal light with Brian McKenzie. What I found there was shocking. The vigilant sentry was Neil's corpse, horribly wasted away. He had been fatally wounded in an armed skirmish with some of the fishermen. O'Malley seemed to be in mortal fear of being blamed for making away with his companion in a fit of madness. He could not abide the corpse, and rather than cast it into the sea, lashed it where I found it. Perhaps its presence there was intended to deter a second surprise attack, though the weather was enough to do that. O'Malley's privations must have been terrible. He existed on stale bread and, of course, water. No more. His overwhelming responsibilities would have finished a lesser man. As it is, he is so subject to the wildest visions, comprehension, and logic, obsessed with something he calls the Kair Shithi, that he cannot be called sane, and perhaps has not been sane for some time. He is surely not long for this world. Until you send new keepers, I myself will tend the Shoalite. Your obedient servant, John Mishu, Shoalite, Bant Firth, Scotland. Postscript. I cannot understand the postwriter's failure to deliver your letter last night. He claimed failure under circumstances that suggest too much ale. Even in the dark, he could have found the door if he had but walked around the lighthouse and felt the stone with his hand. I trust the new keepers reach here very soon, for I seem to be coming down with some obscure illness which is incomprehensible to me. I am conscious of a curious nausea at night, a touch of vertigo, and the stars blur to my eyes and look wrong. Thank you so much for listening uh, every week, as you always do. I really appreciate it. Uh, I really appreciate everything that uh, you guys have said and done about, uh, you know, you guys have said about the podcast. Um, all the reviews have been, you know, really great and really encouraging. And I really appreciate that. If you want to leave a rating or a review, please feel free to do so. I would love to read it, even if it contains constructive criticism. Please note, I said constructive criticism. Don't be one of those guys who's like, this guy's voice makes no sense and I don't like it. One star. It's like, I can't do anything about my voice. And if you don't like it, don't listen to it. That's fine. Whatever. Um, but uh, feel free to leave me a rating and a review. If you want to email me, you can email me at theweirdtalespodcast at gmail.com. If you want to find me on Twitter, you can find me at weirdtalespod. I posted a thread today about Animal Crossing that will break your brain. It was amazing when I thought of it. Uh, anyway, uh, thank you all so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Please, 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 please stay inside. Isolate yourself. If you have to go out... Um, six feet of distance from everybody else and wear a mask, some sort of mask, anything, just something in front of your nose and mouth. Even if it's just like a handkerchief that you fold up and pulled in front of your mouth, like, please. All right. Um, thank you all so much for listening. I really appreciate it. And I will see you next week.